for today, we're going to be talking uh, just for the next couple of weeks, this Sunday and next Sunday, we're going to be talking about a very particular passage that is very well known in the Bible. It is almost cliche in the Bible, and that's why I feel like we need to go a little bit deeper into it. Um, and it is a Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount. So it's found in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And we're going to be going through that this week and the next week. Now, you get a glimpse of who Jesus is and what he's all about as you see his interactions with people. But then this particular sermon is actually so meaty. It not just expands for, you know, three, three chapters, but there's so much in there that we need to unpack and rightly frame in order for us to not completely misunderstand what Jesus is saying. Um, the great thing about Jesus is that while he speaks in parables and really obscure prophetic sayings, um, he is also very direct and very practical as well. So his teachings aren't just an abstract, impractical, new age, kind of like be one with the universe and like, you know, like the material world isn't real. You know, it's, he's not that kind of, you know, hippie kind of guy. Um, it's not about transcending the physical realm and forego all human desire. He's not about that. Um, he actually is a very, very practical person as well. But in order for us to understand what he's calling us to live out as Christians, uh, we also need to understand the why behind it. And so, um, you know, the Sermon on the Mount, many scholars see this passage as like the inaugural teachings that kind of like start out. Uh, start out the kingdom of heaven. So if he's starting a new government, basically, this would be the constitution. Like this is what living under this kingdom, living under this kingship looks like. And so it's very important for us as a church to also be in line with this. So uh, today we'll be talking about kind of the tail end of, if I can get this, um, the tail end of the sermon yeah, this, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Um, this is a disclaimer. If we're not careful about how we handle uh, this particular passage, we can turn it into a collection of do's and don'ts, right? Because you start right off the bat, you're like, oh, so I guess you have to mourn. Oh, I guess you have to be poor in spirit. Oh, I guess you have to do this and do that. And it can very quickly become you do A, B, and C, and that's good. You don't do X, Y, and Z. Because those, those things are bad, and then you're in good terms with Jesus. Um, so what we'll need to do today is first, we're going to give like a general sweep of the three chapters. General sweep. And then we're going to focus in on the last part. And then next week, we're kind of we're going to work towards the front. Does that make sense? My logic often doesn't make sense to most normal people. But it'll make sense as we go through this. Uh, so it starts out, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, it starts out with a slide. Yes. Um, it starts out um, in Matthew 5. And this is Jesus seeing the crowds. He went up on the mountain. Went up on the mountain. Um, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek. For they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. 
Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is a kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So this is how it kind of opens up. This is the ladies and gentlemen, esteemed guests or whatever. This is how he starts out this whole discourse on what the kingdom of heaven is about. And then he goes into a kind of, now we're going to go a little bit more quickly. Uh, He goes into a little section where he talks about the people of God being salt and light. And what that basically means is that the people of God will be distinct from the world. They'll be set apart in some ways, in a way that you can't water down, if that makes sense. They will be distinct from the world. And second, the people of God will be a blessing to the world. They're not going to be their own little monastery, you know, hiding in a... I don't know, in a bunker somewhere, they're going to be people who are going to be in the world and they're going to influence the world for the better. Then he goes into um, talking about he came here to fulfill the law. Now, this is a very interesting kind of claim that he would make, but this is what I love about Jesus. He doesn't allow people to simply label him as a rule-breaking, tradition-defying outlaw, nor does he allow them to label him as a fastidious rule keeper. He sidesteps those two extremes to address both the law and the heart behind it. So he doesn't let you go into either extreme. So he says, basically, before you turn my teachings into, oh, it's only the heart that matters kind of teaching, or it doesn't matter what you believe in. It's only, it only matters what you actually do. Um, Before you do that to his teachings, let me clarify to you that true transformation on the inside will eventually manifest on the outside as well. And so these teachings on the kingdom of heaven, it affects every part of life. And this is a really practical part. It it affects how you handle anger, how you handle lust, how you handle divorce, how your word has to have truthfulness to it, retaliation, and how you relate to your enemies. It also affects how you handle works of piety and devotion when it comes to praying, when it comes to giving to the poor, when it comes to doing charity. Um, It also touches on your finances, how you relate to your finances, how you relate to your inward kind of state of being. If you're anxious, there's something there that has everything to do with the kingdom of heaven. And finally, your view of others. So this is Jesus kind of making sure that this doesn't become like these mysterious abstract sayings that have no real bearing in our world. This means that people who believe in what Jesus says also have to do as Jesus teaches. And then at the very end of this discourse, it, he ends with um, what it means to truly know Jesus, that a tree, you can recognize it by a fruit. And so the sermon ends with a section that we'll be focusing on today. And he says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them 
will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand. So they're actually still building a house. They're building an entire house. They, you know, might do renovations. They might do like pillars and like nice color palettes and like, I don't know, like nice furniture. They build a house all right. They go through years, perhaps even decades, believing that just having heard what Jesus said is enough until the rain falls and the floods come and the winds blow and beat against that house and then it falls and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. That's supposed to be a minor burn to the scribes. So this sounds, this last part actually sounds very unimportant. Um, like it's a very unimportant detail that, you know, Matthew, you know, chose to add on there. But it is actually crucial in our understanding uh, for the meaning and the weight of the Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus is using basically a metaphor of two houses to de describe two types of people. People who actually deep down inside believe his word and his lordship and those who don't. So this is my really amazing um, graphic talent, if I can get this working. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, thank you. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> that was condescending, guys. Come on. Uh, what a pity clap here. Um, so he talks about, you know, two houses. And isn't it funny that they can look exactly the same on the outside? When things are good, they can look exactly the same on the, on the outside. Side by side, you can't really tell the difference. They sound like they believe in the same thing. They look like they have the same integrity of word and the same depth. Of character, and it is only when storms and winds, oh yeah, <laughs> wow, <laughs> storms and winds come that you actually see what's on when it actually matters what's on the on the inside and underneath the foundation, right? This is stone, and <laughs> that is sand. <laughs> wow, thank you. <laughs> All right, man, I'm never doing this again. You guys, <laughs> terrible. <laughs> but so this is this is the point you never see what is truly beneath all of that until the hardships come so perhaps it's the greatest blessing and the gift that comes with seasons of shaking like you get to see what was buried deep in there all along because you know like wouldn't you rather know like if you were one of these houses wouldn't you rather know what's underneath so it's not you know, Jesus isn't, you know, trying to accuse and expose people, but it's a heart. He has a heart to invite people into greater trust and rest that God brings these things into our lives. So whenever we are faced with trials, whenever we're faced with hardships, with hard decisions, with transitions, anything that will bring us out of our comfort zone, it is then and only then that it actually really matters what's lying underneath. So Jesus is differentiating between a person whose life is built on something that will withstand the tests of time, that will remain through the highs and lows of life, and that will be able to withstand even persecution. And this is my favorite part, if I can get it to work. Oh, there you go. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so one house didn't make it, right? Oh, so sad. Okay. <laughs> One house didn't make it through. 
Let's just say that it doesn't matter how what kind of furniture it had. It doesn't matter how nice the decorations were or what colors the walls were or what kind of furnishings it had. It really didn't matter in the end. All that mattered when it came time to stand the test of trials. It was what was lying underneath. So this is what Jesus is saying about two types of people, people who both believe and act out on the things that they've heard Jesus teach on and also people who hear but actually don't really believe in it. This means that people who have a solid foundation, they will be robust in the midst of that which is shaking because shakings will come. I mean, that's undeniable. I wish I could tell you that once you believe in Jesus, everything's going to be great and it's going to be unicorns and roses and rainbows all the, day, all the time. But that's not the case. Uh, shakings will come. Sometimes they will come because you become a Christian. So... believing in what Jesus says and doing what he says, it gives you a kind of grit and perseverance when things are shaking all around. It also means that it gives you steadfastness. This is not working very well today. Steadfastness in the midst of that which is transient. So it doesn't mean that you will do everything perfectly. It doesn't mean that you will be sinless. It doesn't mean that you won't make any mistakes, but it means that you'll be steadfast in the pursuit of becoming more and more like Christ. You'll be facing that same direction no matter how many times you fall. You'll still get up and continue to run that race. And also lastly, in the face of things that are temporary, it will be something that is an eternal foundation. It is something that's not just for this lifetime, but for the lifetime to come as well. So this is my question for us today. The question is, what is your foundation? What is lying underneath all of that? Now, if this was any other season in any other time or any other church, I feel like we could probably stay a bit on the surface and be like, oh, you know, like, like I believe in this and like this and sprinkle a little of this. But for our church and for our community that has gone through a very interesting season, more than ever before, I feel like this is a very relevant question for us to ask. What was actually exposed during that time? And perhaps by seeing what was exposed, we're being invited into surrender even greater parts of our lives over to Jesus. Parts that we didn't even know that we were clinging on to. Parts that we didn't even know that we were holding on to for safety, for comfort, for significance, for hope. These things, if life is just good and you just cruise for all 80 to 100 years that you're here on this, on this earth, you never really need to worry about that kind of stuff. Like you can just like coast through life and you'll be okay. But when you are being shaken, when you're being tested and God reveals these different things in your life and in your heart, that's when you realize God has given me an opportunity to actually address this. I don't know how your experience was in the last year, but 2018 was pretty brutal for many of us. Um, But one of the amazing things that came out of a very difficult year, it was like finally we could see with a bit more clarity what it was that we were clinging on to other than Christ, right? It was very painful to see. It was really ugly to see because all the while we were like, no, we're doing great. We're doing great. We love Jesus. We're passionate. We pray out loud. You know, we are better than any of those other church. You know, there's this sense of like pride and arrogance, like, like things are great. And then a little bit of shaking comes and you realize, oh no, there are a lot of other things that I was clinging on to for safety, for significance, for meaning, for direction, for a sense of belonging, other than Christ. 
And when God begins to expose these things, our natural instinct is to be, you know, really discouraged first. But then the invitation comes. Would you hand that over to me? Would you make me the center and your foundation? That is, I feel like, the most beautiful thing that came out of this last season for our church. Like, we moved, like, how many times? (laughs) Right? And at the end, we're like, what is the building? Who cares, you know? Wherever it is that we're going to meet, we're going to worship him with everything we have. Right? However many people meet, doesn't matter. Like, we're going to meet, and we're going to give him everything that we have. No matter what kind of season we go through, if we can make it through that season, man, we're going to make it through any season. And there's a sense of, like, all the secondary things take that backseat. Like, all the things that you thought were super important all along, all of a sudden, you realize that they're not the primary thing. They're important. Yes, I love having a building. Don't get me wrong. Like, we're going to be meeting here for a while. So don't panic just yet. Um, but like all these things are, are great, but they're secondary. And when we get comfortable, we forget that it's secondary. When, when we get comfortable, we feel like this is indispensable. Like I cannot do my Christian walk without X, Y, and Z. But God in the last season in his mercy and his compassion and his jealousy for wholehearted worship, he graciously and patiently pointed out different things that we really need to surrender over to the Lord. And I feel like that as a community, we're seeing so much fruit from that. Like, so much fruit. Like, I, no matter how amazing of a speaker I am, um, like, I cannot make you love Jesus. You know that, right? Like, I cannot make you love Jesus. Like, I could try really hard, but I cannot make you love him. It needs to be your walk with the Lord. It needs to be you dealing with him and your heart issues and your... Um, circumstances in life and it is only in that way that we get to a place of true worship so on a personal note when we're talking about foundation my question is what becomes evident when trials come what is it in particular that throws you into panic when it is shaken that is a telltale sign that there might be idolatry there that that is something perhaps that the lord wants you to surrender over My question is, what do you believe in? What are you rooted in at the end of the day? Is it true faith in the gospel that leads to life built on the kingdom? Or is it something less than that? And then on a corporate level, the question would be, what is the church built on? What is New Philly built on? Is it good program, you know, nice music, like good looking people up on stage, you know, like young, you know, hip looking people? Um, Is it like a cause that you rally around or a nice facility or a slick website? Like what is it that the church is built on? So when the hardships come, it becomes evident that it was built on something other than true faith in Christ. And that, again, it is God's graciousness that brings us through a season where he exposes what is the foundation. So if we are to delineate the flow of this entire passage of these three chapters from back to front, right? Remember, I'm doing back to front. It starts out with Jesus has authority and his words have power. Remember the last little blip right before uh, the chapter ends? It says that he wasn't like a scribe. He wasn't just teaching these cool sayings and like this new philosophy. There's something very different about him. And he had authority and his words have power. The second thing if you go from back to front, is that his followers have to follow his words. You cannot, you cannot just think, 
Like I can listen and it's a great intellectual exercise. It is a great memory verse. It is a great philosophical intellectual idea. Jesus doesn't give us that luxury. He says, true faith will come if you actually obey my words. You can't just give me lip service. Your faith will be seen in the fruit. So if you see bad fruit, chances are it's a bad tree. If you see good fruit, chances are it's a good tree. So don't say on that day, Lord, Lord, if all you did was do a lot of good things, but it wasn't rooted in my lordship over your life. The third thing is that his followers live differently. So you're going to look different from the world. This is bad news for a lot, of, a lot of people who are hoping they will always be super relevant and like, you know, be able to, you know. Relevance is great, but there's always going to be something that's going to be very different and very distinct about a Christian and somebody who doesn't believe in Christ. There'll be something inherently different about you because you belong to another kingdom. It is a kingdom that reflects the character and the values of its king. So you have no choice but to look different. It's like if I were to say my parents are both Korean I can't help but kind of look Korean. Although I don't really. That's a bad example because I don't think I look very Korean. So, well, yeah. Well, let's say, okay. Dark-skinned Korean. Um, but I can't help but look like my parents. Like, I, I don't know where else I would draw different genes from. I can't help but look like my parents. And in the same way, people who belong to the kingdom of God, they have to look like the king. The king that directs and reigns this kingdom. Not only that, but his followers have a very different value system. They have a very different value. It's not just exterior. It's not just the behavior. It is not just the action, but it's actually rooted in the fact that there's actually different values, different things that the kingdom prioritizes. It won't just be an exterior reality, but it will be rooted in true inner transformation. And then lastly, being a part of the kingdom of God doesn't just mean that you wash the outside of a whitewashed tomb or clean the outside of the cup, right? It doesn't mean that you just act different, but you are a new creation. It touches you at an identity level. Who you are changes because you're now part of the kingdom. So if you were to say it in a different way, Jesus is Lord. That is your confession, right? He's not just a teacher. He's not just a guru. He's not just a great philosopher and orator and great healer, but he is your Lord. He has mastery and reign over your life. Then second thing, true faith requires obedience. True faith in Christ as Lord requires more than just a mental assent or verbal commitment, but it requires obedience. James 2, it says faith without works is dead. It doesn't mean that you have to earn your way into faith by proving yourself through works, but it means that true faith can't help but work itself into the way that you live, the way that you interact with people around you, the way that you choose to spend your time and your finances, what you prioritize, how you deal with people around you. It means that to have true faith means not just being a hearer of the word, but a doer of the word as well. It also means that obedience requires action. It's not just an internal reality. It's an internal reality that mobilizes and fuels action as well. Then we can say that action flows from kingdom values. This action is not based on obligation or earning Christian brownie points, but you have new kingdom values, a new heart and new desires that God births from 
within. So it starts from within. It's not action out there that is kind of disembodied, but it flows from new values, new desires, and a new heart that God births from within. And finally, you can see that kingdom values flow from kingdom identity. It flows from understanding that you are a new creation, that somebody paid for you, that you are a son and a daughter of God, that you are renewed and washed clean. And I have to kind of spell this out very, very clearly because often the way that we deal with different things in our lives is just try to treat the symptom. Just try to treat the the behavior, the action. Just try to treat this minor, like let me tweak something in my life when perhaps it's something much more deeply rooted, something perhaps at the value level, something perhaps at the identity level. And all of this has everything to do with how we can profess in our lives that Jesus is Lord. Am I making sense? This is very, very important because if we don't think about this flow, it can really become about, oh, okay, so when I, when I make an oath, this is how I need to do it. Oh, so when I you think about divorce, this is how I need to do it. When I think about lust, this is what I need to do. Like the teachings of Jesus can become very mechanical and very outwardly focused unless we understand that there's so much more that is, that is right beneath the surface. So I want to close with this thought (laughs) it's pretty pretty short today i want to close with this thought so i was like a brown i was in my first day of christian counseling class um i was like a bright-eyed like teach me everything you have you know professor um you know seminary student um yeah and you know the professor he was like really interesting guy he was like, he had the heart of an evangelist and he was an expert. His, his, his field of expertise was in counseling, but he had an evangelist heart. And so what they did in his ministry was actually offer free Christian counseling for anybody who would want it. But then through that counseling, he would show people that in order to actually not just fix the behavior, but actually fix the values, the root underneath Like you actually need to change your belief system. And so this is how he would deal with people, you know, who are on the brink of divorce or people who are dealing with trauma. Like he needed to start at the level of actually Jesus is Lord. And that's where he had to start. And this is how he actually, like a lot of people ended up getting saved and joining the church. It was through counseling. And it was a way of showing that, man, the fact that Jesus is Lord has so many practical real life kind of repercussions in our lives. So this is what he said. He started this class with this kind of big philosophical question. And it was, what is the most important question that anybody can ask themselves in life? And all of us were like, there's just one, you know, (laughs) like I think of a lot of them. And he was like, it all boils down to one. Like all your problems, no matter what problem somebody who needs counseling comes at you with, like there's only one question at the very root that you have to ask. And that is, who is God? Who is God? It all boils down to that. It means if you're, word, imagine like even if you're a Christian, if you're racked with anxiety, it means that the God that you believe in is a God who's either not powerful, not in control, not out for your benefit and for your blessing. It, it has, you know, you know what I mean? Like 
It means that you believe something inherently about God. Wow. Let's pray for the volunteers. Um, um, so who is God? It's a really important question, and it has all kinds of applications in your life. And it plays that in your life, whether you know it or not, what you believe about God. And the second question he said, if you ask a second question, it is, and who am I? Who is God and who am I? And everything, every decision you make, every desire you have, every chance and risk that you take, every transition that you go through, every trauma that you deal with, all of that stems from those two questions. So as I was reading through Matthew 5 through 7 over and over again this past week, you know, I wish I could say that I'm like the kind of pastor who like breezes through life. And I'm like, man, ministry is so easy. And the love of the Lord is always on my heart. And I love people. And that's just not me. I'm, I'm very human. I love people, yes. But I'm human as well. And I find myself over and over again wrestling with, for example, anxiety or insecurity. I wrestle with different things. And I realize that, man, there's... There's something in me that believes something about the God that I serve that makes me, that allows for me to get, to uh, kind of spiral into anxiety or to deal with this insecurity. There must be something that I don't know about God uh, because I wrestle with particular things. Does that make sense? So as I was reading this, uh, like Matthew uh, chapters 5 through 7, over and over again, I felt like God was kind of trumpeting and like screaming out this one phrase at me. And if you have time later on this week, just, you know, read through Matthew 5 through 7 over and over again. And you'll see different words kind of being almost like secretly, you know, like placed in different ways and different passages. But it begins to kind of come right at you. And that is this. This is what I felt like Matthew 5 through 7 was really yelling at me this past week. You have a father. You have a father. So God is asking me, as I deal with anxiety or insecurity or whatever it is, he asked me, why do you feel like you need to X, Y, and Z? So for example, if we look at the passage um, where it deals like with oaths and lying and adultery and like all these different things, this is what it would mean. Why do you feel like you need to lie to get your way. Don't you know that you have a father who takes care of you? Why do you feel like you have to impress people with your long prayers and your fasting face and grandiose acts of charity with hopes that people see you and acknowledge you? Why do you crave that kind of affirmation from people? Don't you know that you have a father who knows you intimately and loves you profoundly before you ever did anything to please him? Why do you allow anxiety to grip your heart? Why do you allow it to spiral? Don't you know you have a father who provides for all your needs? There's something that we believe about God when we see all these different symptoms appear in our lives. Does that make sense? So I felt like this past week, you know, as I'm praying through different things for the church and as I'm praying through different decisions that need to be made and I'm like, God, I don't have the wisdom that it takes. Like, I don't know what I'm doing half the time. Uh, I don't know if I should say that in front of everybody, but I don't know what I'm doing half the time. Like, are you sure, God? You know, like, do you know where you're leading us? And all these different questions that, that I wrestle with. And God, like, stops me in the middle. He's like, don't you know you have a father 
Don't you know who's actually leading the church? Don't you know that I have a plan and purposes and provision and wisdom and grace and mercy and forgiveness? All these different things that I have for you. Why do you act like you don't have a father? Why do you act like nobody takes care of you? Like you have to make it out on your own. Like if you don't take matters into your own hands, nothing's going to happen. It comes from a belief that I don't have a father. So in theory, I could say Jesus is my Lord and I have a father and I'm a, and I'm a daughter of the most high. But functionally, I am acting like someone who doesn't know God. Somebody who doesn't believe that God is for me, not against me. That God is able to work in my circumstances. God is able to anticipate my needs. God is able, even in my mistakes, he's able to still get the glory from that. So I act like I don't have a father. I act like it's all up to me. I act like, man, if I don't make this right decision, and if I don't say it the right way, and if I don't use the right wording and the right tone, and man, the church is going to fall apart. And God's like, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? It's my church. And you have a father. You know, you're not an orphan. You're not out there doing your own thing. You have a father. You have a shepherd. You have a leader. You have a provider, protector, a comforter. Like, you need to act like that. Otherwise, it's like someone who hears the word of God, but doesn't put it into action. So this is something that has been floating around the internet for a bit. I'm not really sure who the author of this originally was. And it differentiates what it means to be religious and what it means to be a son of God. Religion says, I messed up. My dad's going to kill me. Like there's no margin for error. There's no forgiveness for mistakes. Like I need to perform to prove that I am worthy. But on the contrary, sonship means I messed up. I need to call my dad. It means that every mistake, every trial, every hardship, everything that you come across is an invitation to call upon your dad. Every time you feel like, man, I'm just so overwhelmed by my duties. I'm so overwhelmed by this situation in my family. I'm so overwhelmed by my situation in my work. Like, I don't know what to do about this. I don't know about to, what to do about my future, about my finances. When you feel gripped with that, it's an invitation for you to call on your dad. Call on your father. That is what being a son and a daughter of God means. So I don't know if this kind of, kind of rings a bell and perhaps this is something that you needed to hear and be reminded of today perhaps you're in the midst of decision making and you're paralyzed by the fear of making the wrong decision perhaps you're struggling with letting go of certain things that you that you used to give you a sense of comfort or acceptance or peace in the past perhaps you're feeling shaken by hardships and trials in your life your family your health your future your relationships and you need to be reminded that you have a father. You need to be reminded there's someone who's taking responsibility for you. Somebody who holds you in the palm of his hands and says, she or he is mine. Their days are ordained in my book. They will not falter. They will never be alone. This is the kind of father that we have. And I believe that that's a very important reminder for us as we walk our daily walk. As we struggle with our daily struggles. As we deal with transition as we deal with different things that life throws our way. It's never going to be an ideal life. It's never going to be just all happiness. But when trials come, that is when we call upon our Father. When trials come, that's when we need to be reminded more than ever before that we're not alone. That there's somebody who's leading us, 
somebody who's making sure that we're going the right direction, somebody who will bring forgiveness and second chances whenever we make mistakes. Like, there is somebody who's taking responsibility for us. Amen.